song. So what else is there? Numbers, digits, integers, zeros and ones. Yes. Zeros and ones? Our world is digital. This device we're in and rely on relies on digits, right? Zeros and ones. Yes, they're invisible. But you zoom in enough and underneath our digits. Zeros and ones. And these digits so foundational and permanent is a great group. In the grass, the trees, the birds, the bees, the firmament are all objectively and subjectively determinant in how they're germinant. Now ask me why. Matrices of digits the phone displays as you and me could just as well be re-encoded as any glyphs we want to be. If we could look past what's explicit, we see that what's implicit has no limit. No limit. No limit. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, February 16th, 2020. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filesbotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome back from uh, your trip down south. Yes, and you know it was... uh Pretty much as cold there as it was here uh. <laughs> last weekend. Yeah, oh, well. unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> I was just uh, talking to my wife about this. You know that uh, this weekend was especially cold, but last weekend we just had a lot of rain. And uh, if we had the rain this weekend, I think we would have had a winter storm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good point. It's just cold. Yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> so we uh, dodged a bullet there, but Peter. Mm-hmm. Who dodged a bullet on the trivia answer from last week? <laughs> well, the question was, what do these songs have in common? Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Some people, there's got to be something better than this. ABC, Frank Mills, Ladies Who Lunch. It's a hit, great big stuff. Well, the answer was that all of them had things that have been become obsolete or just don't exist anymore. For example, Diamonds are a girl's best friend mentions the automat. Some <laughs> people mentions the Orpheum circuit. There's got to be something better than this mentioned Sardis East, which used to exist. Um, uh, ABC mentions the Edsel, a car that was a big bomb. Frank Mills mentions the Waverly, which is now a different name theater. <laughs> the Ladies Who Lunch Life magazine. It's a hit. Trib, meaning the Herald Tribune, the uh, newspaper that went out in the late 60s. And great big stuff. Hummer, which is no longer made. A, uh, a truck car mm-hmm. is no longer made. So... Um, Joanna Abizi was the first to answer, saying that the answer was product placement. Well, that doesn't quite explain Orpheum Circuit, but the song does mention bingo, so I say she wins. Uh, Brigadoon was the second to get it, followed by Fred Abramowitz and Ingrid Gammerman. And what of Tony Janicki? 
Well, he guessed they all refer to a famous person. Yes, I said, that's fine, and you're a winner, though it's not what I had in mind. So Tony went through three more theories to guess what was on my mind. The lead singer is addressing an individual or group, a reference to some form of legal tender, express an aspiration. Yep, Tony, no argument. You're right on all counts. So uh, so you're uh, an honorary winner this week, too. Uh, but nevertheless, um, that's what I really had in mind. <laughs> All right. So later on, we're going to ask the next question. Uh, so stay tuned for that. I have not seen uh, Company yet. I, I don't. I don't imagine anyone has. But there have been reports that uh, they had. They have changed. Oh, right to Time Magazine. Yeah. Yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> which, unfortunately, I, I guess most of us would say is that does not have quite the the wonderful double meaning that the old the original lyric did. But sure. Yeah. Do. Yeah. 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 All right. Um, so in the in in news this week, we hear that the off Broadway show Romeo and Bernadette is going to transfer um, over to Theater Row. So, what do we think about this, Michael? Oh, I'm so delighted. I just loved it. I went back for a second viewing and I, I believe I, I had seen it or at least reported on it before Peter. And I did go on record as saying that I thought he was going to love the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then I saw actually on Facebook uh, that that he did. So I'm very happy to hear that. I think the lyrics by Mark Salzman, who also wrote the book, are wonderfully clever. Uh, but then also, you know, just wonderfully sincere when they need to be. And it's a really, really great, delightful musical comedy about this, uh, about Romeo uh, somehow surviving uh, to the present day, or at least 1960, and falling in love with uh, a, an American tourist from Brooklyn uh, and following her back to Brooklyn and, and then courting her. Uh, it, it, I don't know if that sounds like a great idea, but it, uh, you know, it might, you know, it could have been just a, a silly little thing that not not worth more than a comedy sketch. But I really think that. Um, they fleshed it out beautifully and uh, using music of famous old Italian songs um, and really, really, as I said, very well crafted lyrics to go with those famous melodies. So I'm delighted that it's moving and I would urge everyone to catch up with it now that you're going to have such a, an, an extended opportunity to do so. I agree entirely. And let me also say it's produced by Eric Krebs and Eric produced my play. God shows up last year, a terrific producer. He gives you everything that he possibly can. And more to the point, really, <clears throat> this is a guy who's been around a while. He started the George street playhouse in New Brunswick, New Jersey, which is still flourishing. In fact, now they're in a new theater with Nyerich everybody to get down to the George Street Playhouse in New Brunswick. It's not hard from the city. You get off uh, at the New Brunswick stop, and it's a short walk from there, um, And um, but a brand new facility. I mean, they really made it gorgeous. And one of the smallest space is called the Arthur Lawrence Theater, because Arthur Lawrence was a mentor to David Saint, who's been the artistic director there for more than 20 years. So it's a solid organization, but it wouldn't have happened without Eric Krebs, who really started it and um, then moved on here to New York and has been producing for, for, for 40 years uh, and then some. So I'm very proud of him and very grateful to him for my play, but I'm very glad to see the success happening because, yes, uh, in a world where lyrics never rhyme and don't scan, yes, I know, here he goes again, um, here we <laughs> have them perfect. So um, really, attention must be paid. 
Okay. So uh, Michael talked about Romeo and Bernadette uh, a couple of weeks back in January's 26th uh, episode of This Week on Broadway. I'm going to link to that in case anybody wants to get back to that and listen to the review of it. And uh, check out the check out um, the show to see if you want to get some tickets to it before you can't. Yeah, I really think aside from everything else, the cast they have put together is just incredible. Um, really, uh, you know, uh, um, exceptionally so, uh, and particularly uh, the the two who play the lovers, Romeo mm-hmm. Nikita Burstein or Burstein mm-hmm. and uh, and Bernadette Anna. Kostakis. Uh, but really everyone in it, I had extolled Judy McLean uh, mm. when, I, when I saw the show last time, um, who I've never seen her play a part like this. She's playing a, uh, you know, a Brooklyn mob wife with mm-hmm. the high hair and everything and the accent. And, and so great to see her again. I hadn't seen her on stage in quite some years. She, well, you know why. <laughs> uh, well, actually, no. I, I'm I'll sorry. tell you. Please. All right. <laughs> she was in Mamma Mia forever. <laughs> So, oh, oh, yeah. that's right. What yes. did she do she so was... bad that she had to be in Mama Marine? <laughs> She's a terrific performer. I mean, I saw her so many times at Paper Mill uh, in Evita and Victor Victoria. Uh, She's really a marvelous, marvelous performer. And I'm delighted that uh, she has yet another way to show her talents. I was going to say she was um, a real mainstay at Paper Mill. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they were they were lucky to have her. I thoroughly agree. But also the uh, the rest of the cast. I mean, I won't mention everyone, but this Michael Notar Donato uh, and Michael Morata, et cetera, et cetera. It's just it's just great. I I I I so hope that their transfer is spectacularly successful. Okay, uh, Peter, you got over to fifty four below where you saw fifty four sings love song. Uh, and we thought we would include this as part of our What We Should Watch Out For series. Yeah, because this is coming back. There's no question about that. And um, Love Song is a review by Michael Valenti, and um, he's worked with uh, such lyricists as Richard Brinsley Sheridan, Christina Rossetti, uh, Franklin P. Adams. Now, obviously, these people were not in the room when he started uh, composing to them (laughs) (laughs) because they're long gone, uh, including Sir Walter Raleigh, uh, who starts the show with um, his song, What is Love? So this is what Michael did back in... 1976 or so, he decided to do um, a review uh, taking the poems of these famous people from way back when, or even not so far uh, back, as I say, Franklin P. Adams uh, was alive till 1960. But anyway, Michael is a wonderful, wonderful composer who really understands melody, and it's just terrific to hear these terrific melodies. Um, What's really spectacular, too, was the production itself. Um, Four people new to me, Rachel Rhodes-Stevie, Gina Naomi Bays, Quentin Garzon, and Forrest Van Dyke, were just sensational in delivering this material. Now, the thing about Love Song is that you would expect that all these songs would be dated since they go back to the 17th, 18th, 19th, and even early 20th century. That's what's the miracle of these songs. They're not dated at all. The lyrics, well, all right, there's one that talks about um, a, a man needing a woman or something like that, or else his life is not very good. But aside from that, um, 
so many of them speak to today. And that's the miracle of these lyrics. I mean, <laughs> I guess Michael thought of this too when he started writing, gee, these songs still comment in the 70s, but they comment now in 2020 as well. So it's really powerful. But the melodies, um, this guy is so great. You know, in 1976 or so, I heard his score to Mademoiselle Colomb, which I later saw about 10 years later. Um, at the theater that's now called Rattlestick, uh, Tammy Grimes was starring in it. And I'm telling you, when I heard the demo in 1976, I, a song called After Rehearsal is one that I could still whistle and hum for you right now uh, because it was so, so moving and uh, wonderfully spirited. So this guy really knows how to write melodies. And, of course, you may know one of his scores because it did get recorded, and that was Oh Brother um, from uh, the, uh, the 80s. And um, that's terrific as well. So um, when it comes back, make sure you're there to see Love Song. Okay. So um, check out all of that stuff in the show notes as well. We have the uh, the 54 Sings Love Songs link there. Perhaps it'll uh, prompt us to remember when next time they're rolling around and we'll be able to catch it again. So first up, uh, what should we do first? Let's do Michael's Spring Awakening. Michael, you did, got down, as we mentioned, to Maryland, to the Brown House Theater, to see Spring Awakening. So tell us about this. Yes, I made a trip uh, pretty much especially to see this production because I love the show so much. Uh, but also, I, I do like to go to D.C. in general because they have such good theater there in general and i have a friend there so that makes it easier and uh -huh. i have not been a, in a while um so i decided to go and hope that it would be worth the trip and boy was it ever this was i i guess i would have to say it was actually equivalent to the original broadway production um maybe not as good in some ways but better in other ways uh just a really really terrific production directed by alan paul who <clears throat> is quite a popular director down in, in the dc area uh the roundhouse is actually in bethesda maryland i, I forget if i said that um and uh of course, uh, music by Duncan Sheik, book and lyrics by Steven Sater. I don't think it's a <clears throat> perfect show. I've always thought some of the lyrics are a little inscrutable. But overall, I think it's beautiful, beautiful work. And I think I've decided that Duncan Sheik is my absolute favorite uh, a contemporary, you know, modern composer. Um, and I'm so delighted that this show really does seem to have entered the canon of shows that will, you know, will always be done uh, and that people really love uh, some of other uh, some of Duncan's other works. Um, although I enjoyed his work and in, in everything else uh, have not been as successful for one reason or another. Um, and I, I, but he is very prolific. And so I look forward to anything else he has to offer. And I'm so glad, as I said, that this one uh, hit the bullseye and that everyone seems to just really respond to it. Of course, it's based on an incredible uh, epic making uh astounding late uh, 18th, 19th century play by Frank, Frank, or Frank, or Frank, uh, Frank Vedekind. I've <laughs> never <laughs> been exactly sure how to pronounce that. He was German, but his na first name is Frank, which is, you know, anyway, um, about, uh, basically about uh, 
teenagers coming of age and and uh, but just not being respected by their parents and not being given any information about life or birth control specifically and and this just leads to tremendous tragedy uh it's it's an it's an astounding work it was so such a hot potato <laughs> when he wrote it in 1890 or so that it um it was not able to be produced for i think about 10 years or so uh so that's that's what we're talking about here, and it's so fascinating to see works that are ahead of their time like that uh, from a modern perspective. When the first time I saw this, um, the play uh, was in the seventies at Juilliard uh, with Boyd. You Gaines. saw that too? Yes, I think <laughs> yes, we might have discussed well. it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Someone brought me to see it. I would never have gone, and I couldn't believe uh, after the end of Act One, I, I turned to. The friend who brought me and I said, "Wait a minute! When was this written?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I could not believe it. Um, and it's you know it's considered a masterwork and rightly so. But I think the musical just really, really did it proud. And I'm, I'm I, I, I love it, and I will always go to see productions of it, even though it's. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say it's easy to sit through because it's so sad and tragic but it's beautiful 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 show um this this production had an amazing wonderful cast uh christina sastre who i know that name is familiar and i i I think i've seen her in something in manhattan but i looked her up and i couldn't immediately find it anyway she's terrific as vendla uh melchior is evan daves or davis d-a-v-e-s moritz is sean watkinson and uh, the it's a the, the roundhouse has a, a very nice facility in Bethesda. Uh, it looks quite new. I'm not sure exactly how old it is, but it's it's uh, very state of the art. I would say um, the uh, production was just great, simple but but terrific. And one of the best features of it is they have uh, at least for this show um they have not only a revolving stage but one of those stages where it revolves in concentric circles wow mm-hmm. um so this made for some incredibly interesting and fascinating and really great staging um the uh for example in the song all that's known in the beginning uh, melchior is uh, is with the other students in class and they're they're being treated like shit basically by their professor and he's uh, he's rebelling against them and then he sort of has an interior monologue where he sings about uh, about this situation and uh, you know how it, he's would like to get out of it and and so he stood up and and walked and 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 at one point the the students were uh, were seated and turning in one direction on uh, the one of the concentric circles. And he was on the other one going in the other direction. Uh, And then he was walking through them and around them. And it, it just was superb staging. Um, Choreographer, by the way, is Paul McGill, uh, who is probably will be a familiar name to many of our listeners from his work in, New York and including several Broadway shows. Um, then there was another moment, I, I won't mention all of them, where uh, Moritz, uh, you know, who, who of course is a very, very troubled young man because he's, he's uh, terrified that he's failing out of school and that his father is going to basically kill him for that. Uh, 
and so he uh, he's tremendously uh, upset through much of the show, and of course he, uh, spoiler alert, winds up killing himself. Uh, but at one point he he was singing one of his angsty songs, and he was walking walking along one of the uh, revolving stages, one of the concentric circles, but while it was going in the opposite direction. So he was walking, but staying in the same place. And it just, you know, a simple thing like that, it just, it was incredibly effective. Um, so I, 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 you know, I, I don't imagine, it, you know, that many of our listeners will have an opportunity to get there um, to Bethesda uh, during the limited run of this show. But it, it really, it was more than worth my my trip. I, I was so happy that I went. A few other things about it, and um, uh, you know, I, I guess I guess there are some spoilers here, but mm-hmm. but uh, so just bear that in mind. If if you are going to see it, you might not want to uh, listen to the rest of this review. <laughs> but um, but this was an incredible, again, simple but incredible thing for all of the first act. Um, the back wall of the stage was a reproduction, a huge stage size, full stage size reproduction of an old painting, looked like maybe from the Renaissance, of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I, I couldn't identify it specifically. I, I lo- tried to Google, and it looks like a, a, a painting that I found by Bruegel. Uh, but I don't think it was that exact one, but it was very much in that style. And it's uh, actually the moment uh, in the painting that's depicted is of Eve handing the apple to Adam while all of the animals are like sitting around bucolically. Um, and so that was there for the uh, uh, taking up the entire back wall of the theater for the whole first act of Spring Awakening, which famously ends with um, with Moritz uh, impregna- impregnating Vendla and having sex with her for the first time. So that's, that's very much loss of innocence. And so what happened is at the moment, actually, when he entered her, that entire backdrop fell to the floor. Mm. And uh, it was incredible, and then it just wasn't there for Act Two. Act Two was just the the the, the empty back wall of the theater. Um, it, it was incredible. It was just just very creative, and uh, I can't say enough about this production. I think it's only the second one I've ever seen at Roundhouse, uh, but I had found my way there once before to see what turned out to be the best production of cat on a hot tin roof that i'd ever seen so i I, you know if they're um if their standard uh in general is up to those two shows i'm going to keep going down they have a great season uh coming up they're doing um uh, a play that i saw off off broadway called hate fuck uh so that'll be another opportunity to see that and then big love which had been done at um uh well, it was at the Signature Center. I, I don't remember what company it was, actually. Um, the uh, That Charles Me play. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're doing that one as well. So they, they have some really, really interesting stuff. Oh, oh and, and they're doing The Cost of Living. Mm. This is, these are the kinds of shows they do. Very, very um, cutting edge. Very, very... Uh, but, but, you know, it, they seem to be limited to quality shows not just uh things that are popular because uh 
you know, for the wrong reasons. And I can't say enough about the Roundhouse Theater and this production of Spring Awakening. I have a friend who will only, only, only go to Broadway shows. That's it. Uh, uh, he lives in New Jersey. He's yeah. never seen a show in New Jersey. Ah. Uh, he, <clears throat> he's he's very, very parochial in that way. And I keep on saying to him, you have no idea what you're missing. And as Michael has proved once again, theatrical magic can sprout anywhere, anywhere at all. And it's really wonderful to go to see companies that aren't on the bigger map succeed so wonderfully. And I'm not surprised to hear this. I've had theatrical experiences that are terrific everywhere, even in North Dakota. So um, get out there and see these theaters. And not to belabor it, but I, Peter, I think that's especially true now because, you know, for very complicated reasons, Broadway has really become a place where it's more and more uh, things. It's felt that, things have to shows have to appeal to everyone mm-hmm. and uh there is less room much less room for creativity than there even was back in the day i think mm-hmm. uh and everything has to be uh crowd pleasing so so people who now limit their theater going to Broadway, I think they're doing themselves a tremendous disservice. And I, mm-hmm. I would also urge them to do exactly what Peter said and seek out um, smaller companies in the city and outside the city. That is Spring Awakening at the Brown House Theater in Bethesda. Um, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. This Week on Broadway is being brought to you by our friends at ExpressVPN. Some of you may not know what a VPN is. It stands for Virtual Private Network. There are many reasons to use a VPN, but I want to talk about two that I believe are most important to you, the listener. The first reason to use ExpressVPN is security. If you're connected to a public Wi-Fi network at a hotel, an airport, a coffee shop, wherever, there are no way to know how secure this network is. It could be 100% secure, or it could be very insecure and showing all of your personal information. If you use ExpressVPN on any of your devices, a laptop, phone, tablets, whatever, this will prevent anyone else from seeing your personal info. The second reason to use ExpressVPN, it can change your location so you can view services that are restricted by location. Like, uh, say, if you want to watch the BBC or NT Live from the U.S., you can use ExpressVPN to make uh, them think that you are in the U.K. and vice versa. If you are in another part of the world and want to view PBS great performances, use ExpressVPN to connect to PBS.org. You can choose from almost 100 different countries. Don't let technology stop you from getting in your Sondheim fix. ExpressVPN is lightning fast and you will not have any buffering issues that you have in other VPN services. So if you want to visit our special link right now, expressvpn.com slash Broadway Radio, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash Broadway Radio. Michael and Peter, both got over to theater was it theater row where seesaw is yes it's at theater row uh to see this uh j2 spotlight production that is running for just about a week or so 10 days so uh peter why don't you get us started on seesaw 
Well, uh, first off, a disclaimer. Um, I am certainly uh, on the honorary board of this organization, this new organization called J2 Spotlight. And um, Rob Schneider, who directed the production, uh, with a little help, uh, he had to go out of town, um, is, is somebody who uh, I've worked with. So um, I do bring those two things up. But nevertheless, I was tremendously impressed by this production, and uh, the three leads were really quite wonderful. Now, if you know the original play, too, for the Seesaw, and I imagine very few do, but if you, it was a big hit way back when, partly because Henry Fonda was in it, and so was Anne Bancroft, though Anne Bancroft <laughs> was not the Anne Bancroft that we know at this point in time, this back <laughs> in the 50s. This was really her big break, and um, the playwright um, certainly decided that she was so good that he was going to write another play for her, and that turned out to be The Miracle Worker. Mm-hmm. So um, so this is really quite a thing. And um, back in 1973, um, Cy Coleman, Dorothy Fields, and Michael Stewart decided to write a musical version um, and they would add a third character um, because he's alluded to in the original play. And uh, he's David, he's a choreographer and he's a very good friend of Gittel Mosca uh, who at a party happens to meet uh, a lawyer from Nebraska who's having trouble with his marriage and um, and he winds up calling her and they have a relationship. And um, the moral of the story, by the way, is watch out for a guy who's on the rebound. <laughs> yes, me, that's, that's the moral the- <laughs> of the story. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> okay, that said, um, a terrific score by Cy Colbin and Dorothy Fields. However, when they went to Detroit to try out, it was in terrible, terrible shape. Ed Sheeran was the director. Uh, he had done The Great White Hope, which is certainly had um, a lot of people in it. Maybe that's why they felt that he could, was very good at directing traffic and maybe he'd be good for a musical. Grover Dale was the choreographer. Well, anyway, things were not working out. Um, and um, they went to the up-and-coming director, Michael Bennett. And they said to him, um, Michael, would you um, take over the direction? He says, yes, on one condition, I'm the boss. That's it. Nobody, not Cy Coleman, not Dorothy Fields, never mind they've had more experience than I. No, I'm the boss and that's all there is to it. Michael Stewart didn't like the idea, um, dropped out, um, said, take my name off. And Michael Bennett said, okay, put my name on as um, the uh, book writer. So it had a real troubled history, especially when Michael Bennett fired Lainey Kazan and brought in Michelle Lee. He he didn't feel that she was uh, quite right. And there's a wonderful, wonderful um, story about this in Steve Susskind's terrific book, Second Act Trouble, in which he replicates... Um, newspaper articles of, of the era, magazine articles too. <clears throat> and so the, the whole uh, story of Lainey Kazan writing the times and rebutting what happened uh, is uh, certainly worth reading. So anyway, with the troubled <laughs> history and all that, you would really think that um, they would close Detroit, but Michael Bennett came in and did what he could. And um, as the uh, co-artistic director uh, of the company, uh, well, executive producer, I should say, Jim Jamiro said uh, in a pre-show talk that um, what had happened was that Neil Simon came in because Michael Bennett had been working with Neil Simon uh, on plays and uh, he came in and I think you can tell in the best sense of the word. Now, uh, having seen the original way back when, I have to say that I didn't remember the lines being so funny. Now, I'm definitely going to read two for the seesaw, which I uh, saw in Maine about 10 years ago. But um, I'm definitely going to read to see how much of the original play is in there. But Gittel Mosca has a lot of good one-liners. And what I do remember 
from reading The Seesaw Log, which was um, the playwright's uh, examination of what had happened. His diary, really. Um, I remember he said that at the first reading, he felt so bad for Henry Fonda because the um, the actress had all the lines that were funny, and um, Henry Fonda had to play the straight man. And he was really afraid he was going to lose him. Mm. Um, it's also very reminiscent of something Robert Redford said to me, which is also in the season, the Goldman book, which is so many plays that are sent to me. Um, I wind up at the end of the play with my hat in my hand saying to the girl, you're terrific, you're wonderful, you're crazy, and I love you. And this is one of those shows where that exactly happens. Well, Onto this production, spectacularly, wonderfully done. I mean, I am telling you, the three leads, magnificent, I truly believe. Okay, Gittle is played by Stephanie Israel, a son. Uh, David is played by Jay, only the initial Jay Savage. And Jerry Ryan by Andy Ty. And um, I think they're doing a wonderful job. But really, um, turning out to be one of the great stars of the show was Caitlin Belchick, who did the choreography. It's the best choreography I've seen this season. So <laughs> really, um, I really think you should get over to Theater Row and see Seesaw while you can. Uh, it's a tremendous achievement. And what a great start for this company to do something that really gives you confidence that's going to be terrific because soon they're going to be doing No Strings, the Richard Rogers musical, which hasn't been seen in the city since Encores did it about, mm, what, 10, 12 years ago. Hmm. And after that, a class act, a highly underrated show um, about Ed Kleban's life, the guy who wrote the lyrics to Chorus Line, and um, didn't wind up doing much after that. Um, though, as we said um, last week, uh, he certainly came through with giving money to uh, upcoming composers and lyricists and librettists. So, um, so really, uh, I am amazed at how wonderful this show um, turned out to be, and I'm delighted that um, they got up to such a great start. Michael, what did you think? I basically agree with every word except uh, Peter's opinion about the score, believe it or not. Um, I uh, This is one of those shows that I just uh, just have always slipped, has always slipped through the cracks for me. Obviously, I had opportunity <laughs> to learn it, uh, or at least the score through the cast album. But for whatever reason, uh, I just never did. Uh, and I guess um, my knowledge of it is, basically limited to having heard a few of the songs performed in cabarets and benefits and other shows like that. Um, there's the song Gittle's song, nobody does it like me, which I've heard Randy Graff do uh, among others uh, because, and she does it because uh, she makes the point that it's um, very similar in some ways to another mm -hmm. Cy Coleman song uh, that she sang in a, a later show um, City of Angels, although that one has lyrics by David Zippel, whereas uh, Nobody Does It Like Me from Seesaw is the great Dorothy Fields. Uh, so I knew that one, and uh, I guess maybe I've heard um, Welcome to Holiday Inn, which that's interesting uh, because I when I saw Seesaw the other night, I, I met a friend there at intermission, and we were talking about how uh, it was the first time either of us had seen a full production, which I think was probably true of everyone sitting in the theater. Um, and uh, he said, uh, we both commented on that 
we never thought uh, we didn't know how that song would work in context. And it actually seems a little weird um, to me anyway. And I guess to him, because uh, Giddles sings Welcome to Holiday Inn um, when at one point where Jerry winds up at her apartment. And I guess she means that you know he she's inviting him to stay there yeah. uh but i don't know it just <laughs> I, I it's not how i expected the show as a song to show up in the in the show so i was surprised by that um uh, may i say something here sure um <laughs> the album seesaw came out and um my wife and i listened to it quite a bit and um we really liked the holiday Inn song anyway Stephen Eady were on tv one night and they did the song and what was so interesting is that the lyric includes the word horny and um, they didn't quite bleep it out. What they did um, huh. was <clears throat> because we knew the song, we saw that Edie Gourmet actually sang the word horny. Um, however, she overdubbed it later to say happy. And um, so uh, that was considered too naughty a word for the um, <laughs> early 70s TV. So uh, long before cable, where uh, certainly different words come out of the um, box than we used to hear back then. Sorry, Michael. Just want to add that. No, thank you for that bit of info. It's incredible how life has changed. Isn't mm -hmm. it? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, oh, just to, to, to finish that thought that I had. Uh, and then I guess the other song that I knew... Uh, is it's not where you start, uh, parentheses, it's where you finish, uh, which is David's big 11 o'clock number, David and Company, uh, that role, the, the Tommy Toon role, and that, I guess, was, the, was uh, the number that made everyone say, oh, God, who is this guy? <laughs> um, uh, and the Tommy Toon character of David, I think, I think that's one of the pluses of the show. I think, uh, overall, I would say it's really... Uh, really well-written proto-gay character one of the one of the first i would say mm -hmm. uh you know openly mm -hmm. uh, openly right. happily gay mm -hmm. characters uh, certainly in a musical on broadway mm -hmm. and you know it uh, and a lot of times when we look back at uh at characters created in that era they can be a little cringeworthy for one reason or another but i don't think that's true here so i think that's a, a very very um very much a plus for the show. I'm not sure if, if Peter actually said this, but when um, when Michael Bennett took over the show, he did actually wind up uh, taking credit for the book, mm -hmm. uh, despite the, um, uh, the the Neil Simon fact that 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 uh, Peter mentioned earlier. Um, so uh, I I suppose uh, I it's it's safe to assume that. Michael Bennett's presence uh, is partly responsible for the um, for that character of David being so well written. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, what I was going to say is um, Ken Mandelbaum's book, A Chorus Line in the Musicals of Michael Bennett, goes into great wondrous detail about um, the evolution of Seesaw. And uh, the book is one of the great books um, about musical theater. So uh, if you don't have it, you really should look it up. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, the also I wanted to mention, I'm going to have to reread because I, I just finished reading it only a couple of months ago, um, this bio of, of Cy Coleman by Andy Probst called 
you fascinate me. So I'm going to have to reread that uh, and especially reread the Seesaw segment because I remember that he goes into quite a lot of detail about that, including the whole, uh, obviously, the whole Lainey Kazan, Michelle Lee thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, I completely agree with Peter about the leads in this show. Uh, not only are they all three of them spectacularly talented, but also I thought that they were perfectly cast um, in terms of looks, type, personality, every single aspect of it. Um, uh, this Stephanie Israelson was just phenomenal as Gittle. She really had the New York uh, kooky Jewish girl down. I don't, of course, know what her actual speaking voice is or her actual accent, but she sounded completely natural when when speaking in that way. She has the comic rhythms and the timing and uh, just perfect. And um, and conversely, Andy Tai, uh, you know, re- represents perfectly uh, a- an anti-New Yorker from <laughs> uh, from Omaha. Omaha is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, he, you know, I guess it's kind of maybe a-, a little harder to find that type of actor nowadays. He he has a very uh, kind of classic musical comedy look and uh, and very he <laughs> looks very. Midwestern. I have no idea where he's from, uh, and he he was just perfect as well. And this Jay Savage as David, um, he really brought the house down in that big number, and and he did very well in the scenes. Also, um, I completely agree about the choreography. Uh, not only was it excellent, but I also um, would say that it was far more extensive than what one normally sees in these kinds of shows. Uh, This company has expressly uh, set itself forth as a sort of a successor to musicals tonight, which of course was the wonderful company that performed in, well, in various theaters, but uh, lastly in theater row that was run by Mel Miller and which would, uh, would do vest pocket productions of uh, mostly obscure musicals from the past. Um, and in fact, at the performance of Seesaw that I attended the other night, Mel was in the audience and um, Jim, uh, Jim, Jimiro, is that the correct pronunciation? I guess. I don't know. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, J I M I R R R O. So I guess Jim Jimiro, the co-founder of, of J2, um, Jace, Jace, J Spotlight? What a- J2 Spotlight. J2 Spotlight. I'm sorry. Um, he acknowledged Mel's presence, and Mel got a big round of applause. And, and by the way, a lot of people in the audience certainly seem to know who Mel was. So, uh, And Mel is, is also has been an advisor and a consultant on the company. So it is, um, in, in many ways, a true successor to that company. And I think they uh, are going to uh, carry that torch forward. But again, yes, this, this show, this particular show, I would say had more extensive choreography than many of the shows that I saw, uh, at musicals tonight. So I, I, I suppose that maybe they're going to make that one of their hallmarks. Uh, but either way, congratulations to Caitlin Belchick or Belsick for, for what she did with the choreography of this show. Um, it's a, it's a, very, very promising, very, very promising first production. And I look forward 
very much to what they have coming up. I uh, I personally um, am not a, a, a fan of a class act, which um, if Matthew Murray is listening to this <laughs> podcast, I'll, I'll probably get a, 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 yeah. a, a bomb in the mail tomorrow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, people love it. And, um, yes, I, I do too. And I do... Um, I, you know, obviously no strings is another quite obscure item. Uh, so I look forward to seeing that as well. Uh, let's make clear here. Um, most of Mel Miller's shows um, for the first uh, three quarters of the, the 20 plus years run mm. were staged readings. Uh, people were on book and um, it, yes, it did evolve into real productions, but just to make clear here, this is not a stage reading. You do not see books except in scenes where people are actually reading from a book. <laughs> um, but otherwise, um, so let's make that clear. You know, it, this is not a case where people are at music stands uh, turning pages. No, no, no. They're well past that. Oh, yes. So, yes, well past that. So um, uh, I have to make that clear. Oh, and I did also want to mention that another very nice surprise was that uh, it was not just piano uh, for this production of Seesaw. Uh, the stage is fairly small, so uh, one might have only expected piano, which is was usually all that one got with musicals tonight. But this show had um, Grant... Strom on piano, but it also had. Uh, let me just put my glasses back on. Here. <laughs> yes, um, Josh Markham on bass and uh, this <laughs> wonderful musician named Sarah Garten on xylophone and glockenspiel. Uh, there were no, no drums, no trap set, but she uh, she added so much uh, to the show with with what she played on xylophone and glockenspiel, and because um, there were. Uh, you know, still only three musicians. Uh, it seemed like she was playing a lot, so she really got to work out. But I can't tell you how much it added to it. Well, I, you, there was a talk back last night, and oh. um, I asked um, specifically if indeed uh, the orchestrations that come with Tams Whitmark, uh, if indeed um, they include this, because believe me, there was a time in the 60s, and if you listen to original cast albums from off-Broadway shows in the 60s, you're going to hear a xylophone. <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah, yes. uh, so many of them had it. Um, the Secret Life of Walter Mitty certainly comes to mind. But uh, no, Grant Strom actually did the arrangements for this um, oh, when they wow. needed to be. So, I mean, even that, there's a guy here who's, who's doing arrangements. I mean, really, this company is amazing already. Uh, so uh, <laughs> who would have thought that would happen? But it was a delight because how many times do you hear a xylophone anymore, really? You know, exactly. And, you know, and in small shows, they really uh, add quite a bit of and style. So, um, so even there, it was a success. Peter, that is really extraordinary. I'm glad yep. that you you passed that along because, and I'm not surprised because I thought she was playing so much. I thought, gosh, she there's was. a lot. There's a lot of xylophone <laughs> and glockenspiel in this show. Um, so that explains it. Uh, mm -hmm. Boy, that really, really great. So they have, uh, you know, as I mentioned, they're running for about 10 days or so, but they have a number of uh, special bonuses uh, coming up on February 20th. Um, they're going to be having the original cast reunion join the members of the original cast and creative team of Seesaw look back on the show's creation and its road to Broadway. Uh, and on the 22nd, they're going to have a behind the court curtain, a post show talk back with the cast and creatives of Seesaw um, 
So uh, I have a link to that in the show notes uh, where you can get more information about this. But this is really, you know, mm-hmm. when Robert W. Schneider does something, you you know it's going to be great. I, I mean, his podcast is mm-hmm. really, oh, yeah. really wonderful. Oh, yeah. So, I feel honored to have been on it twice, believe me. So, yeah. yes. It, he, he knows what he's doing. He's incredibly talented. We need mm-hmm. to clone him 15 different ways. Mm-hmm. I agree entirely. All right. So let's move forward into the next thing, which is Keen Company's production of Blues for an Alabama Sky at Theater Row. So, Peter, you went. Up a theater or down a theater to get to <laughs> Alabama Sky? What'd you do? Yeah, I, I went uh, down a flight. Uh, for class act, you have to go up a flight. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, both in the same place uh, on 42nd Street between 9th and um, Dyer. So <clears throat> this was hardly Dyer, believe me. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, wouldn't a play with Josephine Baker, Margaret Sanger, Langston Hughes, and Adam Clayton Powell be incredible. I mean, you have big characters, big events. Yeah. That's not what happens here. What happens here is we have people who know Josephine Baker, Margaret Sanger, Langston Hughes, and Adam Clayton Powell to varying degrees. And we're not sure exactly how much they know about these people, but they certainly mention them quite a bit. And here we are in the Harlem Renaissance, but it's the 30s. And the Harlem Renaissance will be winding down soon. And the the play by Pearl Clegg really seems to mirror that. It really seems to show the beginning of the end of the Harlem Renaissance. Well, who do we have as characters here? Well, we have Angel, who's a nightclub singer, who uh, unfortunately is dating somebody who's with the mob. And that's not going to work out terribly well. Not in the way you think, but not terribly well. She's a roommate of Guy, who's an, a very out uh, gay guy and um, has no apologies for who he is, expects people to understand. And as the line goes in that uh, commercial comedy from the 70s, 40 Carats, people take their cue from you. And because he is so confident in who he is, um, he uh, really uh, impresses us. Well, Angel and Guy live together. And he really loves her, not sexually, but he loves her. She does not love him. She likes him. They get along. But I don't think she can love anybody. She certainly doesn't love the gentleman who comes into her life, who's Leland. He's a guy who's had a tough time. His wife died in childbirth. Um, I saw the baby, and um, he's from Alabama. And here he comes to New York City, to Harlem up north of Central Park, as the lyric goes, and no strings. And there he is, smitten with her, love at first sight, which, as we all know, um, doesn't really often amount to very much, love at first sight. Um, However, he's got money, and he's promising her, Angel, a, a, a good life. And considering her life is so bad, well, she's interested in him in that way. Uh, the complications that happen afterwards and the reason Guy uh, has different feelings about Angel as time goes on are, are very, very solid ones. Well, also, it, it takes place in two apartments. And by the way, if you go sit house left, because most of it takes place in that apartment that where Guy and Angel live. 
But across the hall is Delia. Delia is 25 years old and a virgin and is getting a little worried about it. Um, there is an older man who's interested in her, and he's a doctor. And uh, will this May-December romance start? Will it continue? Will it finish? Um, all of the above uh, in surprising ways. So um, <laughs> this play was first written by Proclage in, in 1995. It's been produced around the country. I saw it at Crossroads in the aforementioned New Brunswick a while back. And ironically enough, this is its New York premiere. I mean, the Keene Company really uh, digs out so many wonderful, wonderful plays from, from way back when. And this suddenly, you know, a play from 1995 is already a quarter century old, and it took this long for it to get to New York. It's hard to believe that it would take this long. But, whoa, um, God bless um, um, Jonathan Silverstein for saying, yeah, that's what we're going to do this um, this year. So the cast directed by L.A. Williams. There's no um, periods with L.A. It's just L.A. Williams. Spectacular. Spectacular. John Andrew Morrison truly understands who Guy is. Um, Kiri Walker um, plays Leland, who I didn't quite mention, but um, he's very conservative in his values. So you can imagine how he feels when he sees this and meets this out gay man. Uh, who is living with the woman he uh, loves. Alfie Fuller is um, Angel. She is sensational in that single-minded um, narcissism that uh, she has no idea she's as much trouble as she is. She has no idea that her value system is is not what most people would like it to be, none whatsoever. Delia, a quiet honest performance. My favorite type of acting is when people don't seem to be acting. And Jasmine Johnson does that wonderfully well. Um, and Sheldon Woodley playing the doctor, Sam, uh, really does very well by a character who could be a little stick figure if played incorrectly. He's not here. So um, this is running till March 14th. And this is another example of how the Ides of March is bad news because it won't be playing anymore. So get to Theater Row, get to the Keene Company and see Blues for an Alabama Sky. So um, Alabama Sky is playing, oh, I should say Blues for an Alabama Sky. I shouldn't just abbreviate it. Mm. Uh, it is playing through March 14th at Theater Row. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Michael, you stayed on 42nd Street to, uh, I believe, cross the street. Yes, you did cross the street and went uh, east a little bit to the Duke on 42nd Street, where you saw Emoji Land, the musical, which is the uh, evolution of this show, which came out of one of the festivals. So tell us, what did you think of Emoji Land? Well, I think I'm a little late to the party, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But I do want to mention it because I really enjoyed it. Uh, especially the score. Uh, it's a book, music and lyrics by Keith Harrison and Laura Shine and uh, directed by Thomas Caruso, who was actually someone um, who I first came to know uh, 20 years ago or more when he was just starting out and uh, was very happy to see him at the helm of this really wonderful production. Um, this is a show about uh, the characters are emojis, uh, various emojis that we've all become familiar with, including uh, man dancing, woman dancing, kissy face, uh, smiling face with smiling eyes, smiling face with sunglasses, <laughs> uh, construction worker, 
um, police officer, princess, um, etc. cetera. Uh, and you know what? Uh, uh, I really enjoyed the show, but it also it, it reminded me somewhat of SpongeBob uh, in terms of the plot with these fanciful characters uh, having to kind of band together in the face of some disaster. Uh, what happens here is that the, the villain of the piece is the character is Skull, uh, played by Lucas Steele, and he um, winds up <clears throat> being a you know a troublemaker, and he's. He, I, I won't give away the plot, <laughs> but he, uh, he is uh, the villain, and he's going to uh, maybe cause uh, a, a severe disaster to all of these emojis in Emoji Land. <laughs> um, and uh, so there were some similarities to, uh, to SpongeBob in that in that respect, but uh, but it's it's different also in many ways. And I, I just I thought the score was quite delightful. And uh, maybe the show maybe it was a little longer than it needed to be, but uh, it was tremendously enjoyable for the direction and the choreography and the score. And also, oh my God, you know this seems to be a theme of this podcast. But what else is new? Uh, an incredibly talented cast. Uh, I'm going. This, you know, this is an off-Broadway show, uh, so this goes back to what Peter said earlier. All right, um, Georgia Bood, Laura Shine, Jacob Dickey, Natalie Weiss, Josh Lamont, Felicia Boswell, Max Crum, Dwellon David, Jordan Fife Hunt, Heather Makalani, and Tanisha Moore, and three other people who I would say are three of the most talented people I've ever seen on any stage. And by rights, all, all three should be household names, uh, in, at least among theatrical households. And I guess the only reason they're not is just because of timing and luck. Um, Lucas Steele uh, is Skull, and he was, as anyone who saw Natasha Pierre and the Great Common knows, he has one of the most phenomenal, incredible voices singing voices in history uh and that uh, you know i've always been upset that that natasha pierre closed early for very unfortunate and infuriating reasons which we won't get into but uh but it did run for a while and then it of course it had had um a couple of off and off off Broadway runs before that so i think that a lot of people got to see lucas in that he doesn't work that often i'm i'm not sure exactly why if it's by choice or whatever but he is back in emoji land so i would say it's worth seeing if only for him and indeed he was the main reason i went because i uh, because as i say he's not on stage that often and I, I and i take every opportunity that i can to hear him sing but also leslie margarita is brilliant a uh, brilliant comedian but also a great singer and actress and Anne harada uh makes uh, what's billed as a special appearance in this show and uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> um, I'm sure many many of our listeners know her from avenue q and other and other uh, endeavors but she is back and and as wonderful as always so I um uh and uh, the audience with which I saw Emoji Land seemed very much into the show it seems to have already developed a kind of a cult following and deservedly so uh so I would put it on my list I'm not sure if it's um I didn't have a chance to check if it uh has a closing date 
at the Duke on 42nd, but I think uh, it seems to have money behind it. Uh, it's also quite quite an elaborate production. Um, scenic design by David Goldstein, uh, costumes and makeup, Vanessa Luke or Leck, uh, lighting design, Jamie Roderick and sound, Ken Goodwin. Um, very, very, very well done at the Duke on 42nd Street. Uh, so if you don't get to see it there, um, which you should if you can, uh, maybe it'll turn up elsewhere. But I don't know if it'll have this cast. Uh, so that is something to definitely bear in mind if you can uh, find it in your in your calendar to, to schedule it um, in the next few weeks or months. That'll be wonderful. And great lyrics. And <laughs> amazing costumes. Uh, and... The ending is very touching. Very touching. Yeah, you thought so too, huh? Yes. I mean, you don't. Expect, oh, yeah. You don't expect the word "touching" to show up in a show called Emoji Land, but it really is at the end. You know, so that's very impressive. I totally prejudged the whole Emoji Land thing. <laughs> who can blame you? <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I had trepidation too. I guess you know who knows why, but it, just a combination of reasons. But I'm so glad I went. I really, really enjoyed it. And so when. Uh... The reviews came out. I, I was like, "Wow, okay." It, I, I, I'm might be misremembering this, but I think it became a New York Times critic pick. But I'm not. Oh yeah, not positive mm-hmm. about that. But, mm-hmm. uh, but really, the uh, I was surprised at how wonderful the reviews were for Moji Land. But now hearing it, I have to take another look at it again. You know, it's tough with these uh, these these new shows. You have to really. Pick what you're going to go see. There's only so much you can go see. Sure, of course. Yeah. <sighs> so there's this uh, new play down at St. Anne's Warehouse called Hamlet. Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, I did, you know, I wasn't sure <laughs> if we should go see it or not, but uh, Peter, why don't you tell us? Well, uh, this is uh, St. Anne's Warehouse uh, often brings in productions from here, there, and everywhere. And uh, this is from the Gate Theater in Dublin. And what we have here is a production by Yo Farber, a very distinguished director. And Ruth Nega is playing uh, Hamlet. And uh, Ruth was an Academy Award nominee, a Golden Globe nominee from a few years back. And um, she's decided to take on one of the toughest roles possible. And uh, she's very accomplished in it. But I have to admit that um, the uh, fact that she was a woman was something that never left me. I'm, I, I was strangely reminded of a, a sequence in a funny thing happened on the way of the forum. Pseudolus um, is trying to bilk erroneous. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, not erroneous. Uh, is it? Well, anyway, um, trying to bilk um, somebody who's just came, come back after a long, long time. And um, so he needs to give information and hysterium is behind erroneous, um, giving him charades to tell him what's going on. Um, <laughs> I know what you're going to say. Yeah. So anyway, uh, he says, uh, you have been away for a long time. Um, you have an hysterium rocks his arms back and forth to indicate babies, you know, um, you know, oh, you, you had a child, and then he puts up the number two, two fingers, you know, two children, yes. And then he puts up his arms like a boxer and, you know, has a very stern expression on his face. A boy, you know, and then he gets very feminine and flouncy and uh, does his hair and makeup type of uh, gesture. And Sudalus says, 
and a strange little boy. And of course, no, what he means is a girl, you know, and it's a, it's quite a funny line. And I'm afraid that's the way it comes across to me. A strange little boy. Um, it, it, it's, it's still a woman. And I, I just can't get past that. Terrific performance. Yes, indeed. No question there. But still seems like a woman to me with uh, a woman's voice and all that. But um, this lady knows Hamlet cold, and she really does a, a wonderful job of delivering it. So if you can get past that, um, you're a better man than I and a woman than I. And um, under those circumstances, certainly um, the production is well worth seeing. Uh, a little surprise, I have to say, in the casting of um, of Claudius, um, Owen Rowe, um, usually it's played by somebody um, who um, has uh, a lot of masculine appeal and um, not that the guy's unmasculine, but to me, he looked more like a cross between um, Khrushchev and Goldfinger. So that's a little bit of a surprise, you know, to see that um, because usually um, it's uh, cast with a, a guy who's rather dashing and debonair and uh, what have you to tell us why Gertrude would fall in love with him. But as they say in the boys in the band, you know, affairs of the heart, there are no rules. So maybe it's a little refreshing to see a Claudius who isn't dashing and debonair. We'll see how it impresses you. Uh, Fiona Bell uh, as Gertrude, Charles Wright, the co-president of the drama desk happened to be sitting next to me. And he said, I think they have Melania Trump in mind. Hmm. And I, I think he's <laughs> right. Um, there is, uh, he said, I think that's even the dress she wore at the inauguration. So, um, so uh, maybe that is what they were going for. A very effective Polonius by Nick Dunning. I thought uh, really good. And um, Ophelia uh, by Iofi Duffin. Um, quite, quite frank, um, there's, um, a bit of frontal nudity, um, both top and bottom, uh, in this production when she goes crazy. So, uh, that's a little atypical and, um, but there it is. You know what I really loved about the program? Um, you know, there were the credits with the director, the set and costume designer, of course, the lighting designer. Yeah, we're used to that. Load in and build crew. And 24, 25, two dozen names are listed. Isn't that something um, wow. that the loaded and build crew is so honored here? And I think that's really wonderful. Uh, I'm always glad when pe people behind the scenes are recognized because obviously we can't do it without them. So, um, so I really think it's wonderful that uh, Gay Theater of Dublin did that. So um, a, a wonderful production of Hamlet. Um, but I will add that caveat, um, hot ticket, white, hot ticket, hard sold to out. get into. Totally. Sold yeah. Out. And the thing that must be mentioned about St. Anne's warehouse, the downside of St. Anne's warehouse is that the seats have no armrests. Um, and especially with a show that weighs in at over three hours. Uh, and in fact, <laughs> it could have been longer because they don't do the last scene uh, where Fortinbras comes in. That's happening a lot now, I've noticed. I think, I'd think i say the last three or four productions of Hamlet I've seen, the Fortinbras scene at the end has dropped. But anyway, um, you know, sitting there for that length of time with no armrests, I warn anybody in advance um, who shows up hoping to snag a ticket at the last minute, or those of you who have tickets, um, be aware of that. Be prepared, and um, it, it'll be a little easier for you if you are forearmed about not the arm having armrests so okay uh it does say on the saint anne's warehouse website that it is sold out uh but there is a, a waiting list and uh 
I forget there was another theater last week where we their ticket were sold out, and for a ten thousand dollar donation, they would get you in somehow. So yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But isn't it wonderful that uh, people are flocking to Hamlet? You know, it may be Ruth Negger. It could be, you know, mm-hmm. as I say, she's an Academy Award nominee. Um, she's also on a TV series where she's very popular. Maybe that's it. But I'd like to think that people are saying, wow, Hamlet, a good chance to see Hamlet. Let's take it. All right. So that wraps it up for the morning. Before we get on to our trivia question, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link that way. Each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Lots and lots and lots of places play us. And anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can get Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things that we've talked about today. So, Peter, what is the trivia question for this week? Well, uh, what do these musicals have in common? Happy Hunting, Gypsy, Fade Out, Fade In, Lovely Ladies, Kind Gentlemen, Charlie and Algernon, and Legally Blonde. All right. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com, and we'll let you know if you're on the right link. Scott McHugh, let us know if you are on to this uh, trivia question yet. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. The swallow.